I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. Hi everyone, we are in for a really exciting show today. So my guest today is Christy Amadio and she is the founder of Recovered Living. Christy is so interesting. She is a recovery coach that travels all over the world and lives with clients for months at a time to help them with the recovery process. Christy obviously has other gifts that she utilizes through her Recovered Living organization, which she'll talk about, but this is really interesting and powerful and shows dedication to wanting to heal. Also shows how difficult the recovery process can be. I wanted to point something out. Christy does refer to in this podcast, the fact that she suffered from body dysmorphic disorder. And I wanted to give the definition of it. I think people often assume body dysmorphic disorder and body image distress are the same, and they are not. So I wanted to give a little bit of a definition, and then I'm just really excited to turn the podcast to Christy. So body dysmorphic disorder, which most of us refer to as BDD, is a distinct mental disorder in which a person is preoccupied with an imagined physical defect or a minor defect that others often cannot see. As a result, people with BDD see themselves as ugly and often avoid social exposure or turn to plastic surgery to try to improve their appearance. Now, BDD shares some features with eating disorders and obsessive compulsive disorder. BDD is similar to eating disorders in that both involve a concern with body image. However, and this is the key point, A person with an eating disorder worries about weight and shape of their entire body, while a person with BDD is concerned about a specific body part. So I really hope you all enjoy. This is going to be a great podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. This is a very exciting podcast. We have a woman who literally just blows me out of the water with the work that she does. So the guest for today is Christy Amadio, and Christy is the founder of Recovered Living. And Christy, I could go on and talk about what you do, but I want to hear it from you. If you could tell listeners, say hello and tell us, tell us what you do. 
Thank you, Karen. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. I've always loved you from the moment I first met you. And when I saw that you were doing a podcast, I was like, absolutely. I want to hang out with Karen Lewis and just chat. Um, <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. So in terms of what we provide, I've always been, actually, I'll go back a wee bit. When I was in recovery myself, I always needed extra support because I lived very remotely and I couldn't see face-to-face professionals. And so something that when I was in recovery, I thought would be really cool for other people was online support. And when I lived in New Zealand, I had to have an online therapist, an online dietitian, and I had to use friends for meal support. And I would do that by Skype back then, back in the day. Yeah. And once I recovered, I was like, you know what, let's bring this to other people. And so I started this online service, which was focused around meal support. It was focused around let's talk in the moment when you're in your home and trying to choose clothes for that wedding that you're going to or that birthday dinner. And it's like, ugh, because you can talk about it in therapy in a closed room, but to do it in your home when you're actually in the closet, to do it with a coach right then and there on online that can be like all right put those clothes on what's happening when you're looking in the mirror let's let's deal with eating disorder right then in the moment I thought what a gift and I started it and I was nervous and I was scared that it wouldn't it wouldn't take and it went nuts people were like this is so helpful to have literally a coach that can come into my home not literally not not physically but online and to be able to do meals with people online, to cook with them, literally, virtually, I'll be like, take me into your fridge. Let's, let's prepare a dinner together. Um, it was such a unique way of helping people. And I think it added another element to recovery because people could have their dietitian, they could have their therapist that they could see in the room, talk about the deeper issues away from the triggers of their home and their eating disorder. But to have a coach come into their home online is just another element that I think is so unique but also so important because an eating disorder can show up the strongest in your home where all those triggers are. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny. I appreciate you saying how much you wanted to hang out with me. I don't know if you remember, but I called you about two years ago when I was opening my center, my the I'll just say the name, Karen Lewis Eating Disorder Center, in case people don't know. And I said, Christy, how do I incorporate coaches? because it is so important. And one of the reasons why I utilize coaches is because of what you're saying. It's you can work with somebody in the therapy office, you can work with somebody in the nutrition office, but actually being with them when they're at a restaurant and can't decide over uh, over anything on the menu or can't get out of their closet because they can't figure out what to wear. So these are things that I always felt like when I used to work in residential, coaches were invaluable. Coaches used to take clients to the supermarket. Coaches used to take them home and have them go through all the things that were in their house that they had used, laxatives, self-harm things, all this stuff. And What I want to say is, wow, like you started this from your own experience and that's phenomenal. I think there's a lot of people that are recovered that we just pulled from what worked for us and that's how we work with our clients. 100%. Can you you speak a little a bit to what it's like being a live-in? 
Yeah, absolutely. So for me, when I went, I went through treatment and then when I came out of residential, I was very fortunate at the time. And the Montanito program that I went to had a transitional house where people could go and live. Bellamar. Bellamar, that's yeah. the one. <laughs> My heart. <laughs> Bellamar. And people could go and live and the program would come to them or we would go back to the residential house. It was a little bit of a mix, but the most important part was I had never in my entire life done the life skill piece of going to the grocery store without an eating disorder. I didn't know how, like where food lived, like, did it go in the cupboard? Did it go in the fridge? Like, how do you, what do you do with an avocado when you cut it in half? Like, like, what, what do you do with that? Like those little tiny pieces and so what was so important was we had a house mom and her name was Anna. I know, I know yes. you love it. No one loved Anna. Um, and so she would come and she would show me these things and we would go to the grocery store, store together and prepare food. And when I'd be like, well, I had half an apple with half a banana in my porridge this morning, but what do I do with a half apple and banana? Because I had a thing about not wanting to throw food out, but also about not knowing what to do with it. And it was right. little things that I think had I moved into a shared living situation with people I didn't know, because I wasn't from California, um, I would have been too embarrassed to speak up. And then I think I would have just slipped back into my eating disorder bit by bit, narrowed down my food choices, gone with what was safe. And so the, having Anna come physically into my home um, was so important. And the difference between it being online and, and her actually being there was that she was there for consistent periods of time, you know, four or five hours at a time. And so when I recovered, I was like, you know what? Like I owe my recovery to the concept of Bellamar, 100,000%. Yes. If I had left residential treatment and gone home, I would have tanked, I can tell you now. And so I was like, how cool would it be if I could be Anna and go live with people because I was like I don't know how I'm going to provide a house but if someone already has a house I can go to the house like it's like let's think outside the box right right and so I looked into it and in America I was like why aren't people doing this why not and what I was told is that when people are therapists like there's a whole lot of HIPAA rules that you can't cross and go and live with people because that would be all sort of ethical complications right and the and I think the loophole that I found is that I am I'm a trained counselor in Australia and New Zealand, but my degree doesn't carry over to America. So I felt comfortable knowing like I've got the skills and the knowledge to deal with anything big that comes up. Um, But I wouldn't be doing actual therapy with people. I can use my coaching skills and go in, but I also had that, that basis for, uh, how would I say it? I just, I felt comfortable enough to go in. And again, I didn't know if it was, if it would fly. I didn't know if anybody would, even want that type of service and how do I explain something that doesn't even exist and the interesting thing is from day one that I opened my virtual doors live-ins have been something that people so desperately want and they're they're like amazed they call up and they're like do you actually live with people and I get to say yeah I do and they're like like you will fly out and come and live with me yes yes I will do that yeah um I love live-ins they make me so excited my heart just swells and like what a gift to be invited into someone's family, into their yeah. home. And it is huge for people because not only am I coming into their home, but it's it's their sacred place. It's the place where sometimes no one has gone into because that's their sacred place with their eating disorder. And so I even get goosebumps talking about it because mm-hmm. it's a huge, huge amount of trust to come in. It's sacred because also 
so much can happen at home where behaviors, you're in isolation, you have means to the kitchen, you have, so if there's binging and purging involved or whatever it is, the home can be, I'm not saying it always is, but can be one of the most challenging places. During the night can be one of the most challenging places. So I know that this is this is a, a question sort of shifting a little bit, but what for you was the hardest steps for you to take in recovery or even the easiest? Because again, as you're saying these things, I'm imagining there must have been some qualities for Christy that was really difficult for her at home to sort of realize along with your experience at Bellamar, what were the hardest steps for you to, to work through? That's such a great question. Um, when I was reading through some of the questions earlier and you'd said, what is one of the hardest things or the easiest? And my first thought was there was nothing easy about recovery. I was right. like, it was a hard road. Um, but I'll answer that both ways on reflection. I think one of the easiest things was accepting the help because I so desperately wanted to recover. I just didn't know how. And so once I actually found that there was a place that could give me a blueprint for recovery, this is how you do it. I was like, oh, yes. thank you. Except accepting the help was definitely one of the easiest that I think of it. And the hardest for me was accepting that my body was actually okay. I think deep down I had a sense. I knew what my, I knew what my maintenance body would look like. I had a deep sense, but I had a deep fear of it and a loathing of such a deep loathing that accepting that by choosing to recover, I was choosing to let go of the lifelong goal of losing weight yep. and rejecting my body. That was really hard. That yeah. was really hard because I think for me, the loathing of my body had been about being terrified to accept it because if I accepted it, then that meant I wasn't keeping an eye on my body. And if I wasn't keeping an eye on my body, then the, there was an unknown. What, what would happen if I wasn't controlling it? I hear that question all the time. You know, it's interesting. I know for me, the hardest part for my recovery, the hardest part for me to navigate through was the part that not everybody acknowledges. And for me, and this is actually even the reason for the podcast, it was after the behaviors. I had to go through all of this work on coming to like accepting who I am, accepting all the things that went into my eating disorder in the first place. And now I had to work through those issues. So I think for me, the physical part of recovery was grueling, Christy. I mean, I swear, I tell clients all the time, you have no idea what I was like when I was going through the recovery process. But I think the reason why after was so difficult was because people assume once you're done with behaviors, everything's fine. And I still was very insecure. I still had maturity fears. I still had intimacy fears. I just didn't have any visual to show how scared I was of life. And so that for me, I think was one of the most difficult parts for, and, and that's just my experience. It's different for everybody. Did you always 
believe in recovery? Did you believe you could, did you know what recovery was? Mm, such a great question. And I always think of my recovery in two parts, Karen. I think of there was my recovery from an eating disorder and then there was a recovery from my body image challenges because I also had BDD on top of that. Yeah. And so I had this- Can really you explain? So I, yeah. that was my fault, totally interrupted. So BDD, body dysmorphic disorder, just so people know, because I don't know if everyone knows the lingo. So go ahead. Yeah. I always think of my recovery in two parts. I had my recovery from my eating disorder. And once I recovered from my eating disorder, I didn't do any behaviors. I had no intention of going back to an eating disorder. Yet I still had BDD, which is also, which is called body dysmorphic disorder. And the nutshell version, actually, I'll, I'll let you talk about what BDD is. Yeah, go ahead. No, we'll keep telling your story. And then I'll, I'll sure. sort of do a little adjunct to it. Um. And so even though I didn't have any eating disorder behaviors, I had no desire to go back to my eating disorder. I had no intention to lose weight. I still had crippling body image, absolutely crippling. Yeah. It was torturous. And I looked okay. I ate my food. I sounded okay. But the BDD was such that it really had me contemplating whether I wanted to even live in this body. Yep. And it was really interesting for me because for so many years I'd had BDD and an eating disorder so intertwined to now have them separate was a different experience. And when I talk with clients now, I talk about body image challenges coming from your eating disorder versus BDD because they feel, for me, they felt very different. But if when we talk about being the concept of being fully recovered, I think this is, I love to talk about body image, Karen, because yes. it, it was my thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up in in Australia and in Australia, they don't believe in being fully recovered. That was my experience back then as they talked about managing your eating disorder and we can help you uh, reduce your symptoms. Mm. And so I was pretty happy because I was like, oh, I've got the golden prize. Like I'm, I'm managing, I'm, I'm doing good. And I just thought this was as good as it gets. I was mostly not using behaviors and I hated my body and I was a little bit funky with food, but I could still have a job and relationships and travel the world. And I just had this eating disorder on my shoulder, but I learned to keep a lid on it. And looking back, I was like, how could I possibly be happy with that? But because I thought that was the bar, I was like, yeah, I did it. This, this, this is as good as it gets. Um, once I learned that recovered was possible, I didn't, I wanted to believe it was possible. I wanted to, but I didn't believe it was possible for me. And I used I, to say, yep, I'm just going to say, I'm sorry. I absolutely had the same thing. Everybody else can do it. It's not going to work for me. Keep going. Yeah. I remember saying to uh, an alumni that had come along to Montenegro to run a group and I put up my hand and I said to her, I said, I, I hear that you've recovered. And I said, I think that's great. But I said, you have no idea what my eating disorder is like. I, I, can't do this and she looked at me and she said yeah you have no idea what my eating disorder was like and in that moment I was like oh she's right like yeah like looking at her as a recovered person she was happy she was bubbly and I was like oh her eating disorder must have just been like I didn't want to uh just acknowledge what she'd been through but in my mind I was like oh you know it was hard and then she did it but my eating disorder is like impossible and her just saying to me, hey, you have no idea what my eating disorder was like. And the therapist being like, uh-huh, you should have seen her. It made me think like maybe, just maybe if her eating disorder was tough, like on the same level of tough as mine, maybe I could do it. Right. 
That's that's also one of the reasons why I think being exposed to recovered people is so critical. What are your thoughts about working with a recovered professional? 100,000%. I think there are professionals out there that have never had an eating disorder that are incredible. And I know several of them. Yeah, Absolutely amazing. I think there's such a gift in people that have never had an eating disorder. I remember one therapist said to me once, like I told her what I was doing and she's like, that's just weird. And like, she was able to say that from a non-judgmental place of like, she gave me a reference point for what was normal. And it made me be like, oh yeah, that, that is weird that I do that. Yep. And that was really helpful because she was like, wow. Um, but on the same hand, there's something that is so bonding and nurturing when someone says to you, like, yeah, I know what it feels like to have acid run down your throat. Like, yes. And you, you know that that person gets it. And to hear those little intimate details that maybe someone that's never had an eating disorder hasn't experienced is a moment where two people are sharing a truth and you can't, you can't fake that. Yeah. Yeah. And I also say that very often to, to my clients, I will never pretend because I had an eating disorder and you have an eating disorder that I know exactly what you're going through because I don't, but I have a really, really good idea about a lot of it. And there are times when I can actually like, have a visceral reaction of things that I used to do and think, I remember how painful that was. And so I, you know, and I think you and I know a lot of the same clinicians who have never had an eating disorder, who are hands down phenomenal at what they do. And there's something just a little extra though. You know, like I was talking to Carolyn Costin in one of the other, in the first episode, and I said, it's something just about a language that you have as a recovered clinician that is just a little different. And I can't, can't pinpoint it, but that's, I, I would have loved to have had somebody to look towards when I was in my eating disorder. Cause 30 years ago, I didn't know anybody. Doesn't mean there weren't people that had eating disorders. I just didn't know anybody. So, or especially somebody who was recovered. So let me ask you another question though. And this goes into being recovered, but also goes into how intimate being a live-in recovery coach is. Do you ever get triggered? I love this question so much because- right? The very first live-in I did, it was a very unique one. Um, I'd been asked to actually go back into treatment. Um, This treatment center called me up and said, hey, we have a client coming in that's had an incredibly traumatic experience at uh, residential treatment and she's willing to come back in, but only if someone is with her solely for the purpose of like being her advocate, being her buddy, because she felt like she didn't have a voice. And I was like, sure, I, I can go back to treatment. And it was the most bizarre experience, Karen. I got to live in a treatment center, but I was like with the clients, I was in the milieu, I was going to groups, I was eating at the table, I was going to my client's dietitian and therapy appointments, but I didn't have the eating disorder. And it was the most amazing experience. I really, I, I really just enjoyed the experience of, sorry, I just messed that up. But um, what 
really shook me on the first morning was I was getting the briefing from the dietitian and the clinical director and they were like yeah she's only like she's bonded with you and she's only going to trust you so Christy you're going to have to calculate like the calories if she doesn't finish her food like you're going to have to go into the kitchen and figure out how much um, supplement she needs and we want you to weigh her and I was thinking to myself my goodness like I haven't counted calories since I've had since I had an eating disorder um I haven't been around a scale, you know, for five to six years. And I had this twinge of like, this is something I hadn't considered. How is this going to go? And it turned out to be so funny because I would weigh my client and then I would hold the number in my head because I didn't want to write it down in case I accidentally showed it to her. And then I'd go to the office to write it down. I'd be like, you know what? I just forgot the number. I'd come out. I'd be like, I am so sorry. I I have to do this again. And I explained to her, I said, I was really nervous about doing this. And she was so understanding and just gracious about it, which I so appreciated. And then when I'd go to do the calories, like there was a part of me that was like, oh man, am I going to start being like, oh, how many calories are on my plate? And the beautiful thing was, Karen, didn't even enter my head like same thing I'd have I'd have to look up the calories again and be like oh what is this like and it didn't it didn't even want to stick there was no part of it that wanted to be like oh this is how many calories are in this scoop of potato that I had on my plate like my brain was like been there done that got the t-shirt and it didn't work out for me so yeah it was such a refreshing experience to be asked to literally participate in some behaviors that I used to do in my eating disorder for someone else's recovery and to have it not affect me at all. Um, I've had people say to me, I want to recover, but not if I look like you. And that's been so good for me to be able to be like, that's okay. When you recover, you don't get my body, you get your body. And that's the one you have to make peace with. Um, You know, it's my worst nightmare to have someone say to me, I don't, I don't like your body. I don't want your body. And it doesn't stick at all. It doesn't like, it's like that, that it, I don't even have words to say how much it doesn't stick because I know it's not about me. It's a, it's about them and their fears. And, and the truth is I, I love my body, like not in the sense of, I love it. I want it to be on a, on a billboard <laughs> somewhere. It's just like, I love my body because I love me and my body is the, the wrapping on the present that is me. It's, it's just my body. Like it's, I don't even know that I have the words to convey the love that I have is very different to what I thought I wanted. Very different to how I thought that I wanted to feel about my body. I often say that everything I ever wanted in my eating disorder, I didn't get until I was fully recovered feeling comfortable in my my body feeling you know feeling confident feeling all these things that i i was like this is what i'm going to get from being in an eating disorder i didn't get it until years later when i was out of it it's interesting because clients sometimes say to me I just don't believe that I'm ever going to love my body. Like, that's just a ridiculous thing to say, you should love your body. And I said, first of all, you're not going to hear me say you should love your body. What I'm asking right now is, can you just stop hurting your body? Can you stop hating your body to the point of torturing it? Loving your body 
is no, that's not even my goal for somebody as a recovered person. I say to them, I don't wake up every morning and like kiss myself and go, God, you're gorgeous, Karen. I mean, sometimes I do, but most of the times, but that's not what being recovered is. Being recovered is being able to sort of look in the mirror and go, huh, I don't really like the way that looks today or I look. And then you go on with the day. You don't change anything about your food. You don't not go to the office. You don't not meet your friends for dinner that night because you don't like the way you look. That's being recovered. Not being able to look in the mirror and say, you are gorgeous from head to toe. And I think, again, and I forgive me, I keep saying this is another reason why I do the podcast, but people feel failed at the recovery process because they're like, I don't love my body. So I'm not doing something right. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what recovered is. It's not about that. It's, does that make sense? Am I making sense with what I'm rambling about? Amen. And like, I almost want to, I want to speak to this as well. That's the first time I've ever said out aloud kind of in public, like I love my body. And I also want to And so what I wanted to say to people just then is like, I've been recovered for like six, seven years and there's still stages within that. Like, am I recovered? Yes. But I think the first year I was recovered, the next year I was like, oh, this is the second Christmas where it's just been like, whatever, we're all good. And this is the second holiday I've been on where I've just had a great time and adding to memories. And so like, you, you know, I'm so many years down the track now and I'm still having moments of like, oh, I just said out loud, I love my body, but not in the way that I thought that I would when I had an eating disorder, when I recovered. Exactly. Like it. And I think part of that is that my values literally shifted from I was willing to die in order to have the body that I wanted. And now like my body is like maybe a hundred on my list of values. Like there's other things that yeah. are much more important, like my, like my relationships, being able to spend time outside, um, doing, do, make, doing things that make a difference. Yeah. Um, and I think my greatest fear was that if I didn't have my body up there, high up on my values, that something terrible would happen. But the truth is my body has my body's health as its number one priority. So I just need to let my, I just had to let my body look after itself because yeah. I didn't need to look after it because it already knew how to do it. I was just trying to control. It was like trying to control the weather. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Yeah. And another thing that I often say is that, I have many, many things that I I can reflect back on now and say, these are definitely things that keep me recovered. And one of the things that keep me recovered and not obsessed with my body is I realized I don't like trends. I don't like things that are trendy. I don't, and this is not about anything. Listen, if you like the in fashion, it's great. My body doesn't feel comfortable in it. Like I regardless of whatever size my body was, it's never going to feel comfortable in skinny jeans. It's just not. And so I found like people always comment like, oh yeah, Karen, the one with the flowy clothes. Like I always wear these really flowy clothes. And it's because my body does feel beautiful in it. I, I don't want to be ruminating all day if I'm wearing something very tight that if I took a few sips of water, I, my pants start feeling tight. Like there's a way to stay recovered that you have to, 
you have to find what works for you. I found a style that works for me. When I was first in my eating disorder, I was 19 years old. I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like I looked like anybody. I was in college. I wasn't comfortable in the clothes that people were wearing, but I thought I had to. And my body didn't fit those styles in the way I thought they were supposed to. By the way, everybody's body fits anything, but from what I constructed in my mind is how I was supposed to look in these clothes. And guess what? I don't have to dress that way. And I think these are some of the little nuggets and pearls or bites, shall we say, that actually I tell clients and I think, oh, it's okay. it's, that's not a big deal. And they're like, wow, I never thought of that. Because part of the eating disorder is going against your natural self to fit in, part of it. There's many, many things that go into an eating disorder. But if you stop all that outside chatter and listen to what feels comfortable and good on you, then yeah, there are times when I really love my body. I, I look in the mirror, I like the way I look and what I've put together. And it is, it's an expression of myself as opposed to before my eating disorder was an expression of myself. What is it like when people like, so I know that, that a lot of people I'm assuming, and I shouldn't say assume, but do people outside of the eating disorder community, do they know that you're recovered? hundred thousand percent. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in my experience, I feel like people go one of two ways when they recover, they either are like, like I said earlier, been there, done that, got the t-shirt and I never want to talk about it again. Like let's, yeah. let's, let's move on. Let's, let's go and reinvent myself um, and start with a clean slate. And some people recover and they're like, I just like, this is amazing. Like I feel in wonderment every single day. I'm like a child. I'm like, yes. So cool to be. I, ne- I never take it for granted ever. It's a gift. Um, and so I think I just, I'm by nature, I'm a very effervescent person and I just get so ex- like I wake up and I'm excited about the day and then I get excited because I'm excited because I know what it's like to wake up and, and not, and not know how I'm going to get through the next hour. Yeah. And so for me, like when I meet people, I'm like, yeah, this is what I do. This is what I've done. This is my story. Um, because to me, it's energizing that from a place of so much hopelessness and despair can come so much life. Um, yes. So yeah, everybody knows. Yeah. It's, it's I, what I've built. It's what I've built my business on. It's what I've built. Actually, I don't want to say it's what I've built my business on. That sounds like money like, but it's what I've built. It's everything I do today is around the fact that I am recovered because yes. I want, if there's one person out there that didn't think it was possible, that now thinks it is, then that's made the whole thing worth it. Yeah. And I think, or I'll at least speak for myself. My entire career is around working with eating disorders. And just like you, it's not a business model. It's a life passion. That's why I couldn't imagine doing anything else. It's, I, I know how horrible it was. I know how gratified I am about my being recovered. I feel like nothing makes me happier than working with families because I know that my family was a huge part of my eating disorder and my family was a huge part of my recovery process. Like there's all these things that play into it. I love when families come into my office and I can see the parents and they have their head hanging low thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be blamed. And I'm like, that's not why we're here. 
Because and, and I say that because that was my parents' experience. When I got diagnosed, my parents were sitting with their head in shame. It's not about one thing, but let's just look at everything that's that's playing into it. Right. And so it's not that you and I are like, this is our business model. This is just our passion. This is why I wake up every day, you know? And it's better than the passion that you think you have when you're in an eating disorder. Oh my gosh. I always say to people like the confidence that I used to have in my eating disorder from the body. I'm going to say that again. The confidence that I used to have in my eating disorder from having the body I wanted doesn't even hold a candle to the confidence I have in my recovered life of having the body that I have. Like I want the body that I have now. Yeah. And I used to wake up and be like, yeah, like I can see, I can see this muscle on my body or, you know, my stomach feels like this today. I'm confident. Yeah. Now I just yeah. wake up and I'm confident just because I am not because I've had to do something to be confident. Yeah. And that yeah. for me, that's the real, the real fundamental shift is I don't have to do anything when I wake up in the morning, I just have to breathe air and I'm good to go. Whereas <laughs> in, my, in my eating disorder, I had to wake up and it's like, I have to exercise this much. I can only eat this. Like, and I had to do all these things in order to get the confidence that I wanted. Now I just wake up and I'm good to go. Right. It's powerful. It is powerful. I say all the time, I have never met a recovered person who regrets being recovered ever. <laughs> totally. Right. That's just not, it just doesn't happen that way. I'm curious, just sort of changing gears a little bit, sort of talking about with all the different clients that you work with, because I imagine, and again, I keep saying as a live-in, you're working with all different forms of eating disorders. And there are many that that are, are represented, underrepresented. What do you think is the most underserved population of people with eating disorders? I want to answer that in two ways. Um, my very first thought is people living in countries outside of America. I think America mm-hmm. has such an incredible system with eating disorders and any sort of treatment, and it's by no means perfect. There are many gaps and holes in the system within with insurance and all sorts of things. Um, but my experience is you know, working with a client in in Germany, yes. working with a client in India, working with a client in um, Bulgaria. Like I got asked to translate for a client who was Japanese. Um, she had never even, she she needed meal support Mm -hmm. and they had no one that they knew of in Japan that could provide that. Um, so my heart aches for the people that live in countries or remote areas where they don't have access. And this is why the online piece is so important. And while COVID-19 is scary and it's, and it's out of control and it's shifted our lives upside down. I think the fact that people are having PHP and IOP in their homes, I think there's the gift in that. There's something that's kind of cool. Um, the other area that I had no idea it was something I was going to be pulled into, but I have had many clients with eating disorders and ADD and time and again, I hear of how they've slipped through the cracks in treatment and they haven't really been seen or they've been labeled as non-compliant or resistant. Um, And one client in particular, the first session I ever did with her, she said it in a way that just captured my heart, Karen. She said, I just feel like I've been misunderstood. And when she said that, I almost made a silent pact with myself. And I said, I'm going to do my very best to try and understand this client. 
And oh my goodness, did she put me through the ringer? Like there was times yeah. where I wanted to misunderstand her because I was like, in my internally, I'm like, you're being so frustrating. Yeah. But I had, I had to go back and be like, all right, she's had this pattern of being misunderstood. What aren't I seeing? Yes. And having to be creative and ask questions different ways. Tell me what this is like for you. And as we started to uncover, like I had no interest in working with ADD because in my mind, it was so separate from an eating disorder. I was like, it's a different diagnosis. Like it's yeah. like, it's not even related. But then at, when I did a live-in with her, I was like, I was floored. I was like, oh my goodness, take me to Barnes and Noble so I can get every ADD book on the planet. So yeah. I can start to learn about this thing because this is impacting every moment of your recovery from decision-making, from follow-through, from initiation to everything I was like I don't even understand how your mind works and I don't like we need to figure out a way that you can recover because this is like trying to do recovery in a different language yeah Um, and I didn't ask for it but I keep getting clients that have ADD and I've just had to learn more about it and I think I'm starting to feel like they appreciate it in different ways because I can be like, oh, you know what? I have a client that often says exactly the same thing and this is what's going on in her mind. And they'll say, yes, no one's ever said it like that before. Yes. And I'll admit like as someone, as a coach, I have to work really hard to be creative and come up with different ways because I've never had ADD. I don't understand it. I've not lived it, but I'm doing my best to understand it because I can really see in so many places that people have been missed um, just because you can't capture everything in treatment. You just can't. Yeah. It's impossible. Um, but it has become something that I'm learning more about and becoming really interested in understanding and misunderstood. You know, as you're sitting here and you're, you're saying all of these people that you work with in all these other countries and all these other states, I can't help but like my heart is so full right now, Christy, because one of the things now I'm licensed in multiple states to do psychotherapy so I can do cross state lines. I'm not licensed in every state. I'm not licensed in other countries. And gratefully, coaching has different guidelines. So the licensure part does not put boundaries between you and clients who really really need the support, whether you're doing a live-in or you're doing virtual. And what a gift, what a gift you provide. And it's endless because there are no boundaries for you. And that I, I am just acknowledging what a gift you are to the world by, by being able to do this. And also by, I, I know how hard you work. And, and I often think people that are recovered, we work this hard. Everybody works hard. Please make, I want to make sure everybody knows I am not saying it in a sense that recovered people are better or work harder. It's just, we have a different internal drive to go that extra mile, I think, or at least I'm going to speak for myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the way you said it earlier, Karen, you said it's not a job. It's a way of life. Yeah. Um, and to use an analogy, I used to work on the racetrack, um, like training the racehorses in the morning and we lived on the track. We worked double day shifts and it wasn't a job. It was a way of life. You yes. lived, breathed, slept, ate horses. And I loved it. 
Um, and I think with doing this work as a recovery coach, it's, it's a way of life. It's, it's yes. what I do, but it's not work because I actually, like I had a husband, like I was at a live-in and he said to me, he's like, we were in a private moment and he's like, how do you do this every day? And yeah. I said, oh, I said, I just get energy. I said, when I'm in the room with an eating disorder, I'm like, I just get so energized because yeah. I can see the potential for what could be. And he's just shaking in his head. And he said, don't take this the wrong way. But he's like, that's so messed up because he's like, I'm exhausted. And I'm like, you're allowed to be exhausted. You're the husband. You've yes. been fighting. You've been fighting this in the dark with your hands tied behind the back, tied behind your back. Yes. Um, I said, you're allowed to be exhausted. I said, I get energized because I'm just like, let's, let's, let's do this. Yeah. 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 I actually want to just speak to my experience of working with you. And I think it's important for listeners to know the extra mile that you go. So you know that I have recovery coaches for my center with that work with me at my center. I do not do overnights. My, my coaches do like go to the supermarket with clients. They, they will, you know, help them at their house. They will help them with meals, but it takes a totally different level of, I don't know if it's dedication or training or whatnot. So I do not provide overnight recovery coaches. So I work with you whenever I have clients that need a live-in. I just want to make sure that everybody understands how far you and your recovery coaches go. I had a recovery coach that worked with one of my clients, one of your recovery coaches, who's probably going to be a guest on this podcast as well. And she slept on an air mattress to be near the client. And also because the client was in a one bedroom apartment. And there was really no other place. And this apartment was sort of a place for the mother and the daughter to live while the daughter was getting treatment. And I know you sleep on air mattresses. I know that you go to these jobs and you're working much more than a regular shift. And I just feel so compelled to let the whole world know it, it, is, it is like nothing I've ever witnessed and nothing has made me feel safer then when the client that I work with had one of your recovery coaches as a live-in. And that speaks to you because you trained this person. So it's it's pretty off the charts, Christy, what you do. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, it's it's off the charts. I, I feel badly. I really, we're, we're almost at the end. And what I really wanted to do was I also wanted to talk about the fact that you were on a TED Talk because that's how amazing you are, Christy. So could you just, could you let people know, like, what was the name of the TED Talk? Like, I, I can't speak highly enough of you and I want everyone to know the stuff you do because your TED Talk is also really amazing and it speaks to how passionate you are about this. Thank you. It was such a surreal experience. And I still look at like, I look at other people's TED Talks and I'm like, oh yeah, they need a TED Talk. And then I'm like, but, but my, I, just, I just spoke on stage. <laughs> right. It was so surreal. Um, and it was probably one of the most difficult challenges of my life was to try and write a TED Talk. And what they do when you do it, well, actually, I need to be clear. It was a TEDx talk. We need to be very clear about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're, they're two different things. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so when I did the TEDx talk, they send you like a wee brochure of like, 
what to do and what not to do. And the first thing they say is don't look at other people's TED Talks and compare because you'll go down a rabbit hole. And so straight away, I was like, that's a fantastic idea. I should totally look at other people's TED Talks and try and like pull out the juice and try and do something as good as theirs. And my first draft was horrendous. Like yes. I sent it to Anna and she wrote back and she's like, do you want the truth? And I was like, yeah, she's like, I hate it. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I had like, I went through this process of getting like drowning in a rabbit hole of comparison for like a couple of days. Um, and then I was like, okay, put that aside and just do me just right from my heart. And then the yeah. second draft, everyone was like, oh, that's the Christy we know and love. Yes. Um, it was an incredible experience. I feel so so grateful to have done that and that like the audience Karen were amazing they were so supportive like I was telling my story and I'd rehearsed it because they asked you to to know it but you can say it backwards forwards and inside out but then you get coached to say it as if it's the first time you're talking about it which is which yes. is quite a skill and I was saying something in the story and like the audience like gasped I think it was when I was talking about how expensive treatment in America is particularly when you're from New Zealand because then you have to double it because of the exchange rate and they gasped and I was like whoa this wasn't this wasn't how I practiced it I wasn't prepared for a gasp and so I had to take a moment and reground and then I said something else and then they laughed and suddenly I realized and it's like I'm not just saying a speech I'm interacting with people and suddenly the room got smaller and it was like I was talking to like a handful of four or five people and then I just let go and I just got to talk and then I was just in the room and everyone was with me and like I even get goosebumps about it now and the best advice I got from someone I was I was in the third session that day so there was probably about six other people that had spoken before me and I kind of sidled up to them before I went on and I was like hey is there any hot tips (laughs) I'm kind of freaking out here and the number one thing they said was just enjoy it enjoy your moment on the stage because they said it's going to go very quickly and take a moment to soak it in and I did take a moment to just breathe it in and be like this feels like a dream and I feel like the luckiest person alive and what the TEDx talk has done Karen is people have seen it all over the world and I've had people contact me just to say thank you for letting me know that being recovered is possible thank you for making helping me feel like I'm not the only person on the planet that feels like this um And on the flip side, I've had people absolutely attack me and tear it apart and say that clearly I'm doing it all for the money. And um, actually, I I stopped reading the comments. I read two and I cried and it kind of broke my heart a little bit because in my head, I had thought, I'm just going to tell my story and share some love and everybody's going to love it. And I had no I hadn't prepared myself for the fact that there's a whole social media world out there. And unfortunately, some people have very strong opinions and and want to tear people down. And I hadn't prepared myself for that. And so after like it had been live for 24 hours, I jumped on YouTube and it had like, I don't know, like 2000 likes and 150 dislikes. And straight away I went, there's 150 people that didn't like it enough to hit the downward thumb. And I was like, like, what is there to hate in there? What is there not to like? Um, And like, that was that was a curve for me. Like I had to learn how to get a thick skin really fast yeah. because it had come from such a place of love. And there were people that took the time on YouTube to write some really cutting comments. Um, but you know what the gift is, is that I have had hundreds, hundreds of emails, people that have called me, found my number, gone on my website and called me just to say, thank you. And what I realized is that people that were touched by it, they go the extra mile back. 
they're the yes. ones that find my email. They, they, they phone me up. They, they've sent me things in the post to say, thank you. Like handwritten letters and the people that are haters, they'll leave their comments and then they'll go on and find the next person to hit out against. And so I really had to focus on the appreciation that came in. Christy, you never cease to amaze me. I swear. Again, this is one of the purposes of the podcast. Life is not always perfect as a recovered person. You do something from your heart, you're vulnerable, and you get your feelings hurt. That's, I'm not saying it's right, but I'm just saying that's an example of life. And there is no eating disorder behavior in the world that was going to change how you felt about those negative comments. You have to learn that life is filled with positives, negatives, neutral, challenges, all these different things. It's life. So I am just so grateful. Well, I do want to ask you though, I mean, and this is saying something about yourself, talking about yourself, not from um, YouTube or anything like that, but if somebody was going to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? (laughs) Um, I have this vision in my mind, like I'm just imagining myself sitting on the bathroom stall and then like seeing what someone's written about me. And I would love it to be like a love heart with like explosion of fireworks coming off it because I feel like that would describe kind of who I am and how I show up in the world. I'm just a big bundle of love and I'm a big bundle of energy. Like people say to me, do you get exhausted by yourself? And I'm like, no, I just get more energized. Um, um, I think, I don't know that it would be so much worse, but it would be a, a, an imagery. Yeah, I would be one adding one of those hearts on that bathroom stall with you because I absolutely agree. You are so full of love. Christy, I can't thank you enough for being a guest on the podcast. It has been really, really wonderful having you. Uh, I feel like, can we do this again? Like, can we just hang out after after the tour, after the call? This, this, is, this is being great. I've had so much fun. Great. Thank you. Christy, again, thank you. And I will look forward to seeing everybody in our next podcast. So I hope everybody stays well and safe during COVID-19 and hope people can sit around and just be curious about all these podcasts. All right, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.